Chapter 12, Part 1 of 2 of The Guns of Bull Run, A Story of the Civil War's Eve. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Al Roca. The Guns of Bull Run, A Story of the Civil War's Eve by Joseph A. Altscheller. Chapter 12, The Fight for the Fort. Before they reached the brook, they hailed Sergeant Carrick, lest they should be fired upon as enemies. And when his answer came, they dropped into a walk, still panting and wiping the perspiration from damp foreheads. They bathed their faces freely in the brook, and sat down on the bank to rest. The sergeant, a regular and a veteran of many border campaigns against the Indians, regarded them benevolently. I heard firing in front, he said and I thought you might be concerned in it. If it hadn't been for my orders, I'd have come forward with some of the men. Sergeant, said St. Clair, if you were in the West again, and you were all alone in the hills, or on the plains, and a band of yelling Sioux or Blackfeet were to set after you with fell designs upon your scalp, what would you do? I'd run, sir, with all my might. I'd run faster than I ever ran before. I'd run so fast, sir, that my feet wouldn't touch the ground more than once every forty yards. It would be the wisest thing one could do under the circumstances. The only thing, in fact. I'm glad to hear you say so, Sergeant Carrick, because you are a man of experience and magnificent sense. What you say proves that Harry and I are full of wisdom. They weren't Sioux or Blackfeet back there, and I don't suppose they'd have scalped us, but they were Yankees and their intentions weren't exactly peaceful. So we took your advice before you gave it. If you examine the earth out there tomorrow, you'll find our footprints only five times to the mile. Far to the right and left, other scattering shots had been fired, where skirmishers in the night came in touch with one another. Hence the adventure of Harry and St. Clair attracted but little attention. Shots at long range were fired nearly every night, and sometimes it was difficult to keep the raw recruits from pulling trigger merely for the pleasure of hearing the report. But when Harry and St. Clair related the incident the next morning to Colonel Talbot, he spoke with gravity. There are many young men of birth and family in our army, he said, and they must learn that war is a serious business. It is more than that. It is a deadly business, the most deadly business of all. If the Yankees had caught you two, it would have served you right. They scared us badly enough as it was, sir, said St. Clair. Colonel Leonidas Talbot smiled slightly. That part of it, at least, will do you good, he said. You young men don't know what war is, and you are growing fat and saucy in a pleasant country in June. But there is something ahead that will take a little of the starch out of you and teach you sense. No, you needn't look inquiringly at me, because I'm not going to tell you what it is, but go get some sleep, which you will need badly, and be ready at four o'clock this afternoon, because the Invincibles march then, and you march with them. Harry and St. Clair saluted and retired. They knew that it was not worth while to ask Colonel Talbot any questions. Since he had met him again in Virginia, Harry had recognized a difference in this South Carolina colonel. The kindliness was still there, but there was a new sternness also. The friend was being merged into the commander. 
They chose a tent in order to shut out the noise and make sleep possible. But on their way to it they were waylaid by Langdon, who had heard something of their adventure the night before, and who felt chagrin because he had lacked a part in it. Although everything generally happens for the best, there's a slip sometimes, he said. And I want to be in on the next move, whatever it is. There's a rumor that the Invincibles are to march. You have been before the Colonel, and you ought to know. Is it true? It is, replied Harry, but that's all we do know. He was pretty sharp with us, Tom. And among our three cells, we are not going to get any favors from Colonel Leonidas Talbot and Lieutenant Colonel Hector St. Hilaire, because we're friends of theirs, and would be likely to meet in the same drawing-rooms if there were no war. Harry and St. Clair slept well, despite the noises of a camp, but they were ready at the appointed time, very precise in their new uniforms. Langdon was with them, and the three were eager for the movement, the nature of which officers alone seemed to know. The Invincibles were an infantry regiment, and the three youths, like the men, were on foot. They filed off to the left behind the front line of the Southern Army, and marched steadily westward, inclining slightly to the north. Many of the men, or rather boys, not yet fast in the bonds of discipline, began to talk, and guessed together about their errand. But Colonel Talbot and Lieutenant Colonel St. Hilaire rode along the line and sternly commanded silence, once or twice making the menace of the sword. The lads scarcely understood it, but they were awed into silence. Then there was no noise but the rattle of their weapons and the steady tread of eight hundred men. The young troops had been kept in splendid condition, drilling steadily, and they marched well. They passed to the extreme western end of the Confederate camp, and continued into the hills. The sun had passed its zenith when they started, and a pleasant cool breeze blew from the slopes of the western mountains. The sun set late, but the twilight began to fall at last, and they saw about them many places suitable for a camp and supper. But Colonel Talbot, who was now at the head of the line, rode on and gave no sign. If I were riding a bay horse fifteen hands high, I could Go on, too, forever, whispered Langdon to Harry. Remember your belief that everything happens for the best, and just keep on marching. The twilight retreated before the dark, but the regiment continued. Harry saw a dusky colonel on a dusky horse at the head of the line, and nearby was Lieutenant Colonel St. Hilaire, also riding, silent and stern. The Invincibles were weary. It was now nine o'clock and they had marched many hours without a rest, but they did not dare to murmur, or at least not loud enough to be heard by Colonel Leonidas Talbot and his lieutenant colonel, Hector St. Hilaire. "'I wonder if this is going on all night,' whispered Langdon. "'Very likely,' returned Harry, "'but remember that everything is for the best.' Langdon gave him a reproachable look, but trudged sturdily on. They halted about an hour later, but only for fifteen or twenty minutes. They had now come into much rougher country, steep, with high hills and populated thinly. Westward the mountains seemed very near in the clear moonlight. No explanation was given to the Invincibles, but the officers rode among the groups and made a careful inspection of arms and equipment. 
Then the word to march once more was given. They did not stop except for short rests until about three o'clock in the morning when they came to the crest of a high ridge covered with dense forest but without undergrowth. Then the officers dismounted and the word was passed to the men that they would remain there until dawn. But before they lay down on the ground, Colonel Talbot told them what was expected of them, which was much. A strong northern force is encamped on the slope beyond, he said. It is in a position from which the left flank of our main army can be threatened. Our enemies there are fortified with earthworks, and they have cannon. If they hold the place, they are likely to increase heavily in numbers. It is our business to drive them out. The colonel told some of the officers within Harry's hearing that they could attack before dawn, but night assaults, unless with veteran troops, generally defeated themselves through confusion and uncertainty. Nevertheless, he hoped to surprise the northern soldiers over their coffee. For that reason, the men were compelled to lie down in their blankets in the dark. Not a single light was permitted, but they were allowed to eat some cold food, which they brought in their knapsacks. Although it was June, the night was chill on the high hills, and Harry and his two friends, after their duties were done, wrapped their blankets closely around themselves as they sat on the ground, with their backs against a big tree. The physical relaxation, after such hard marching and the sharp wind of the night, made Harry shiver, despite his blanket. St. Clair and Langdon shivered too. They did not know that part of it was that three o'clock in the morning feeling. Harry, sensitive, keenly alive to impressions, was oppressed by a certain heavy and uncanny feeling. They were going into battle in the morning, and with men whom he did not hate. The attacks on the Star of the West and Sumter had been bombardments, distant affairs, where he did not see the face of his enemy. But here it would be another matter. The real shock of battle would come, and the eyes of men seeking to kill would look into the eyes of others who also sought to kill. He and St. Clair were not sleepy, as they had slept through most of the day, but Langdon was already nodding. Most of the soldiers also had fallen asleep through exhaustion, and Harry saw them in the dusk lying in long rows, the faint moon throwing a ghostly light over so many motionless forms made the whole scene weird and unreal to Harry. He shook himself to cast off the spell, and closing his eyes, sought sleep. But sleep would not come, and the obstinate lids lifted again. It had turned a little darker, and the motionless forms at the far end of the line were hidden. But those nearer were so still that they seemed to have been put there to stay forever. St. Clair had yielded at last to weariness, and with his back against the tree, slept by Harry's side. He saw four figures moving up and down like ghosts through the shadows. They were Colonel Talbot, Lieutenant Colonel St. Hilaire, and two captains watching their men, seeing that silence and caution were preserved. Harry knew that sentinels were posted further down the ridge, but he could not see them from where he lay. Although it was a long time, the forest and human figures wavered at last, and he dozed for a while. But he soon awoke and saw a faint tint of gray low down in the east, the first timid herald of dawn.
The young soldiers were awakened. They started to rise with a cheerful exchange of chatter, but were sternly commanded to silence. Nevertheless, they talked in whispers and told one another how they would wipe the Yankees off the face of the earth. Workers from the shops in the big cities of the North could not stand before them, the open-air sons of the South. They stretched their long limbs, felt their big muscles, and wondered why they were not led forward at once. But before they marched, they were ordered to take food from their knapsacks and eat. Five minutes at most were allowed, and there was to be no nonsense, no loud talking. Some who had come north with negro servants stared at these officers who dared to talk to them as if they were slaves but the words of anger stopped at their lips they would take their revenge instead on the yankees harry and his two friends had fitted themselves already into military discipline and military ways they ate not because they were hungry but because they knew it was a necessity meanwhile the faint gray band in the east was broadening the note of a bugle, distant, mellow, and musical, came from a point down the slope. "'The Yankee fort,' said Langdon. "'They're waking up, too. But I'm looking for the best, boys, and inside of two hours that Yankee fort will be a Confederate fort.' The note of the bugle seemed to decide the southern officers. The men were ordered to see to their arms and march. The officers dismounted as the way would be rough and left their horses behind. The troops formed into several columns, and four light guns went down the slope with them. Scouts who had been out in the night came back and reported that the fort, consisting wholly of earthworks, had a garrison of a thousand men with eight guns. They were New York and New England troops, and they did not suspect the presence of an enemy. They were just lighting their breakfast fires. The southern columns moved forward in quiet, still hidden by the forest, which also yet hid the northern fort. Harry's heart began to beat heavily, but he forced himself to preserve the appearance of calmness. Pride stiffened his will and backbone. He was a veteran. He had been at Sumter. He had seen the great bombardment, and he had taken a part in it. He must show these raw men how a soldier bore himself in battle, and, moreover, he was an officer whose business it was to lead. The deep forest endured as they advanced in a diagonal line down the slope. The great civil war of North America was fought mostly in the forest, and often the men were not aware of the presence of one another until they came face to face. They were almost at the bottom where the valley opened out in grassland, and were turning northward when Harry saw two figures ahead of them among the trees. They were men in blue uniforms, with rifles in their hands, and they were staring in surprise at the advancing columns in gray. But their surprise lasted only a moment. Then they lifted their rifles, fired straight at the Invincibles, and with warning shouts darted among the trees toward their own troops. "'Forward, lads!' shouted Colonel Talbot. "'We're within four hundred yards of the fort, and we must rush it. Officers, to your places!' Their own bugle sang stirring music, and the men gathered themselves for the forward rush. Up shot the sun, casting a sharp, vivid light over the slopes and valley. The soldiers, feeling that victory was just ahead, 
advanced with so much speed that the officers began to check them a little, fearing that the Invincibles would be thrown into confusion. The forest ended. Before them lay a slope from which the bushes had been cut away, and beyond were trenches, the walls of fresh earth from which the mouths of cannons protruded. Soldiers in blue, sentinels and seekers of wood for the fires, were hurrying into the earthworks, on the crests of which stood men, dressed in the uniforms of officers. "'Forward, my lads!' shouted Colonel Leonidas Talbot, who was near the front rank, brandishing his sword until the light glittered along its sharp blade. "'Into the fort! Into the fort!' The sun, rising higher, flooded the slopes, the valley, and the fort with brilliant beams. Everything seemed to Harry's excited mind to stand out gigantic and magnified. Black specks began to dance in myriad before his eyes. He heard beside him the sharp, panting breath of his comrades, and the beat of many feet as they rushed on. He saw the northern officers on the earthwork disappear, dropping down behind, and the young southern soldiers raised a great shout of triumph, which, as it sank on its dying note, was merged into a tremendous crash. The whole fort seemed to Harry to blaze with red fire, as the heavy guns were fired straight into the faces of the Invincibles. The roar of the cannon was so near that Harry, for an instant, was deafened by the crash. Then he heard groans and cries and saw men falling around him. In another moment came the swish of rifle bullets, and the ranks of the Invincibles were cut and torn with lead. The young recruits were receiving their baptism of fire, and it was accompanied by many wounds and death. The earthworks in front were hidden for a little, while by drifting smoke. But the Invincibles, mad with pain and rage, rushed through it. They were anxious to get at those who were stinging them so terribly, and fortunately for them the defenders did not have time to pour in another volley. Harry saw Colonel Talbot, still in front, waving his sword, and near him Lieutenant Colonel St. Hilaire, also with an uplifted sword, which he pointed straight toward the earthwork. "'On, lads, on!' shouted the colonel. "'It is nothing. Another moment and the fort is ours.' Harry heard the hissing of heavy missiles above him. The light guns of the Invincibles had unlimbered on the slope and fired once over their heads into the fort. But they did not dare to fire again, as the next instant the recruits, dripping red but still wild with rage, were at the earthworks, and driven on with rage, climbed them and fired at the huddled mass they saw below. Harry stumbled as he went down into the fort, but quickly recovered himself and leaped to his feet again. He saw through the flame and the smoke faces much like his own, the faces of youth, startled and aghast, scarcely yet comprehending that this was war, and that war meant pain and death. The Invincibles, despite the single close volley that had been poured into them, had the advantage of surprise, and their officers were men of skill and experience. They had left a long red trail of the fallen as they entered the fort, but after their own single volley they pressed hard with the bayonet. Little as was their military knowledge, those against them had less, and they also had less experience of the woods and hills. As the Invincibles hurled themselves upon them, the defenders slowly gave way and were driven out of the fort but they carried two of their cannon with them, and when they reached the wood opened a heavy fire 
upon the pursuing southern troops, which made the youngsters shiver and reel back. They, too, have some regular officers, said Colonel Talbot to Lieutenant Colonel St. Hilaire. It's a safe wager that several of our old comrades of Mexico are there. Thus did West Pointers speak with respect of their fellow West Pointers. Exulting in their capture of the fort, and still driven by rage, the Invincibles attempted to rush the enemy, but they were met by such a deadly fire that many fell, and their officers drew them back to the shelter of the captured earthworks, where they were joined by their own light guns that had been hurried down the slope. Another volley was fired at them when they went over the earthen walls, and Harry, as he threw himself upon the ground, heard the ferocious whine of the bullets over his head, a sound to which he would grow used through years terrible long. Harry rose to his feet and began to feel of himself to see if he were wounded. So great had been the tension and so rapid their movements that he had not been conscious of any physical feeling. "'All right, Harry?' asked a voice by his side. He saw Langdon with a broad red stripe down his cheek. The stripe was of such even width that it seemed to have been painted there, and Harry stared at it in a sort of fascination. "'I know I'm not beautiful, Harry,' said Langdon. "'Neither am I killed or mortally wounded, but my feelings are hurt. That bullet, fired by some mill-hand, who probably never pulled a trigger before, just grazed the top of my head, but it has pumped enough out of my veins to irrigate my face with a beautiful scarlet flow.' The mill-hands may never have pulled trigger before, said Harry, but it looks as if they were learning how fast enough. Down, Tom! Again the smoke and fire burst from the forest, and the bullets whined in hundreds over their heads. Two heavier crashes showed that the cannon were also coming into play, and one shell striking within the fort exploded, wounding a half a dozen men. I suppose that everything happens for the best, said Langdon but having got into the fort, it looks as if we couldn't get out again. With the help of the earthwork I can hide from the bullets, but how are you to dodge a shell which can come in a curve over the highest kind of wall, drop right in the middle of the crowd, burst, and send pieces in a hundred directions? You can't, said St. Clair, who appeared suddenly. He was covered with dirt, and his fine new uniform was torn. What has happened to you? asked Harry. I've just had practical proof that it's hard to dodge a bursting shell, replied St. Clair calmly. I'm in luck that no part of the shell itself hit me, but it sent the dirt flying against me so hard that it stung, and I think that some pieces of gravel have played havoc with my coat and trousers. Hark! There go our cannon, exclaimed Harry. We'll drive them out of those woods. None too soon for me, said St. Clair, looking ruefully at his torn uniform. I'd take it as a politeness on their part if they used bullets only and not shells. They had not yet come down to the stern discipline of war, but their talk was stopped speedily by the senior officers who put them to work arranging the young recruits along the earthworks, whence they could reply with comparative safety to the fire from the wood. But Harry noted that the raking fire of their own cannon had been effective. The northern troops had retreated to a more distant point in the forest, where they were beyond the range of rifles, but it seemed that they had no intention of going any further, as from time to time a shell from their cannons still curved and fell 
in the fort or near it. The southern guns, including those that had been captured, replied, but, of necessity, shot and shell were sent at random into the forest which now hid the whole northern force. End of chapter 12, part 1 of 2